Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Unlocking Universal Secrets of the Soul. My guest is Eddie Billamoria, who is a consultant engineer and has been project manager and head of design for major projects such as the Channel Tunnel. He has also worked in safety and environmental engineering and management for several Royal Navy projects, including the Queen Elizabeth Aircraft Carrier. He is chairman of the Theosophical World Trust for Education and Research, a trustee of the Scientific and Medical Network, advisor to the Galileo Commission of the Network, and is a trustee and council member of the Francis Bacon Society. He is author of Mirages in Western Science, Resolved by Occult Science, The Snake and the Rope, Problems in Western Science Resolved by Occult Science, and his latest four-volume work, Unfolding Consciousness, Exploring the Living Universe and Intelligent Powers in Nature and Humans. In our previous conversation, we discussed science and the perennial philosophy, and I'll link to that interview in the upper right corner of your screen. Today, we'll be discussing his second volume, Peering Down the Microscope, Man's Internal Landscapes. Eddie is located in Godalming, which is south of London. Now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Eddie. It is such a pleasure to have you back with us today on New Thinking Aloud. Amy, it's been an honor and a delight to be with you. I so enjoyed our first session. It was very meaningful and very uh, enjoyable. So it's great to be back with you and, uh, and your audience as well. In our last conversation, we talked about how the perennial philosophy can help science. And today we're going to go a little further into how the occult science can help each human and their soul. In my first volume, just to uh, <clears throat> step back a bit, I was trying to show how the perennial philosophy assisted by occult science complements science. It's never a question of an opposition. It's a complement. In the second volume, the idea is to show how occult science, the occult understanding of the human being, would make a tremendous difference to our relationship with the world because we are part of the world. And in the third volume, we see how we are going to relate to the world as a whole. But... Um, Occult science being the hidden wisdom to do with the invisible and noumenal influences that produce the phenomena, the noumena, the invisible causes, the phenomena, the outward manifestation. 
So the occult constitution of the human being uh, includes the uh, the human being at all levels, the physical, of course, but the non-physical bodies, so to speak, are of immense importance. And science, in my understanding, will never understand mind if it restricts itself just to the physical. Can you share a little bit about how you decipher the different aspects of the human soul? Yes, we can always start from the divine principle and see how it manifests at the physical. So without trying to make this into a bit of a college lecture, <laughs> let me put it in, in simple terms. The word soul is misunderstood often, and soul is equated with spirit. It's not. Soul is the interface between spirit and the material body. So soul at its highest level touches spirit, and it's at its lowest level touches, so to speak, the body. But the soul is an interface. Now, if we start with what every great philosophy mentions in their own terms the divine spark atma in sanskrit atmu with the egyptians agathon with the greeks that divine spark can't just contact the physical plane the physical body just on its own it needs various vehicles acting as transformers to step down, so to speak, the divine voltage to a level that the human body can handle. So Atma, the divine spark, divine consciousness, its veil it is Buddhi, the spiritual soul, and the spiritual soul can't directly contact the body without its own transformer, which is the human soul, the mind principle. And those three are the immortal aspects of man. By man, I mean the human being, not gender, of course. Now, that immortal needs a physical vehicle, a physical material principle to express its potentiality to and that is the uh, known as the the animal soul which uh, comprises the lower mind the brain mind the desire principle the etheric body the model body and the physical body and that is beautifully expressed in uh, in the um, in the bible if only people would understand the bible and all religious texts in their esoteric meaning uh, i think the saying is isn't it that the lord god fashioned man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and thus the man of dust became a living soul. So the Lord God, Atma, 
breathed into the man of dust, the physical body, the breath of life, prana, and into his nostrils. Well, we can't be literal about this. His nostrils means his subtle bodies and transformed the mechanistic man into a living, breathing, vital human being. So there's no end of confusion in the occult literature about whether you divide man into two, three, or seven. All of these divisions are really different ways of looking at the same organic human being. We can look at the man as the individuality, the higher self, and the lower self. But when there is a higher self coming together with a lower self, there is an interface. So then there is spirit, soul, and body. And then we can further fractionate that into the seven. And the seven principles are anything but arbitrary. They're based really on mathematics, on algebra. We know from algebra that any combination of n entities taken one at a time, two at a time, three at a time is two to the n minus one. So if you have a duality of two, two to the n, two to the two minus one is three. So if you have a and b, you have a, you have b, and you have a, b, c, the triplicity. So if you start with the triplicity, 2 to the 3 minus 1, you get 7. So the 3 are like the primary colors of the rainbow that produce the other 4 as secondary colors. So all these primary colors and secondary colors are really aspects of consciousness that emanate from the 1 from the one white light in this uh, rainbow analogy. There's divine consciousness, and then there's also mm, lack of connection to that divine consciousness. Oh, definitely, yes, yes. Do you want to share how we as humans can understand and know thyself better so that we can connect more with that divine consciousness and live a more joyful happier, peaceful life. How to connect with the divine consciousness. Everyone has their own way. One, one, we always recognize and honor and respect the material world, the terrestrial world, the earth we live on. But one uh, important point is we are on this earth, but we're not of this earth entirely. So by uh, listening to great music, great literature, countryside, nature, all of these ways connect with the divine consciousness or the divine in us. And the central point is to maintain that inner silence in oneself. A more technical answer, occult science answer, is to uh, understand the absolutely vital um, role of the antakarana, which is the internal instrument which connects the lower self with the higher self. Yes, please tell us more about that. 
Right. The, the word antakarana, the Sanskrit word, means the internal instrument. It is very much in the way of an umbilical. It's always important to look at the parent-child relationship as above, so below. A baby is connected to its parent via its umbilical. An astronaut in his spacewalk has an umbilical. What the umbilical provides is obviously oxygen, food and nutrient. In the human being, it does a bit more than that. It provides the means whereby all the spiritual aspirations that the human being has nurtured throughout his life is absorbed into the higher nature. And that connection is strengthened the more we think unselfishly, the more philanthropic, the more universal our outlook is. And that connection is thinned down the more we are self-centered, self-orientated, me first, I just live for myself. So in the extreme, when that connection is entirely severed, the consequences uh, are pretty dire. And the occult literature talks considerably and in great detail and with great care about the phenomenon of soulless beings and um, how that happens and uh, the consequences of uh, what happens if I if you want me to go into that well I think we can see examples of that throughout history right oh my goodness yes yes and uh, unfortunately conventional psychiatry has no understanding, I say conventional um, psychiatry, of course, uh, that such uh, facts exist in nature. But the artist and the, the great poets have an inkling of this, and no better example than uh, Robert Louis Stevenson in his uh, novel The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But soulless human beings are... A, a fact in nature, human beings who are incarnated, having severed their connection with the spiritual informing principle, and therefore really are cunning brutes and display a quality of high intellect, but no intelligence. The more that we can connect with that, the more that we can be divinely guided by this intelligence. It's important to understand some of the technicality as well, um, and then we can try and apply it and see it in our lives. The more we try and connect with the higher part of ourselves, the more we can engage with that and bring that to bear in the problems in, in, uh, in our daily lives and other people's lives. And there are various states of consciousness that we can choose to connect with or not. They most certainly are. They most certainly are, yes. Mm -hmm. And one sees this in, uh, in people uh, who are 
centered, let's say, very much uh, at the physical consciousness level, who are centered in the emotional and the mental and the, the, the spiritual. And of course, we need all of those states of consciousness. There's no question of superiority, but uh, the situation calls for one, the preponderance of one or the other. In your book, you describe about how a man or a person is builded up. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, I use the word builded deliberately, not built, because built is the past tense. Builded is a process. And um, I've distinguished between the constitution of man, again emphasizing that man doesn't mean male gender, it means the human, man, the thinker. I've distinguished between the constitution and the nature. Our constitution, using very much medical terminology, uh, is to do with our anatomy, our occult anatomy, and our nature is our physiology. We, Our nature, we can only act the way we are builded up. And the way we are builded up will determine how we act. And I've gone to some lengths to explain that the seven or the three are not like onion skins that you peel off and then you're left with the core of the onion. <laughs> I've used the example of the human body, which is really an organic unity, but we can regard the human body in two ways as head and torso or in three ways, head, heart, and torso, or all the other organs, which are aspects of the one body. Similarly, in terms of our nature, we are one unified human being, but we can present to aspects of our nature the inner person and the outer person, our domestic life, and our life in the outside world. We can be a father, a brother-in-law, and a friend, so three. But we're not three different things. We're, there are three aspects of the one person. And when we are in bed, deep sleep, all of those aspects are subsumed in the one person. But they emanate, they open up in our daily activities. So Build it up means the various levels of consciousness that have contributed to the wholeness of the human being. Always remembering that the inner life is far more important than the outer life. We may lose our job, and it's not very nice, and or whatever, but if our own home life is happy, then we can cope with it. If our home life is unhappy, then the outer life is of insignificance. So the inner person is far more important and significant than the outer. As above, so below. Yes, definitely. And the below is a reflection and the projection of the above. And that's the sheer beauty of the hermetic sciences, the occult sciences, which show this in wonderful relationship and unity at the deepest level. 
Can you share a little bit more about what you mean or how you would define occult sciences? Well, let's first start with uh, the word esoteric, which is often used as a polite or a safe way of referring to occult because, you know, people think of witchcraft and all of that. So esoteric simply means hidden and concealed as opposed to exoteric, which is the outward. So the esoteric is to do with the hidden influences, the noumena behind the phenomena, that which underlies the outward phenomena. Occult is not just understanding the esoteric, it is engaging with it. So it's the difference between meaning and function. So if I use a musical analogy, um, a mystic would be someone who is deeply musical, very sensitive to music. But then if such a person wants to know a bit more about music, he won't just shed tears listening to Beethoven, Schubert and whatever. He want to learn uh, about the composers and learn an instrument. So then he is engaging with the hidden aspect of music, so to speak, in the esoteric sense, in this analogy. But then when he can actually perform as a musician, then he is engaging as an occultist. So an occultist is not only aware of the hidden laws of nature, but can actually use those laws those hidden laws of nature at different levels for um, various purposes and, you know, for various ends, which is why um, it is such a dangerous science, not because it's dangerous in itself, but the potential for misuse is tremendous. And um, the ego inflation, when one gains supernormal powers is uh, the the ego inflation is incredible therefore the various schools of teaching of the mystery schools go to the most enormous lengths to test a candidate's resolve how wisely he will use those powers that have been revealed to him and the powers that are revealed are given in various stages. I mean, in the Indian system, you, you have first the tortoise and then the lion and then the eagle, all signifying degrees of awakening. And all the other uh, schools uh, of philosophy have uh, these sort of divisions. In With the Greeks, you, you have the Eleusinian, the um, Orphic and the Dionysian different degrees of revelation depending on the worthiness of the candidate. Hmm. So occult science is a sacred science. And what is sacred is secret, not because we want to keep it secret, not at all, but what is, uh, it, it has to be private and it has to be treated with tremendous reverence because we are really talking about the inner influences, the inner powers, the inner forces in nature. Yeah. Our inner thoughts, our inner emotions and feelings and 
impulses and desires. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm thinking about the esoteric as also our inner self, and the exoteric as the outer, seemingly outer world. Yes. And how our consciousness we we tend to think that it's private, even though there is telepathy, and we do have a consciousness that can impact everyone, and others' consciousnesses can impact us as well. Indeed, yes. So our inner thoughts impact our outer world. They impact our outer world. They impact our relationships and our own health and mental health. Yeah. In a big way, I think the sooner people realize that thoughts are things, they will use their thoughts responsibly. Thoughts are not just neurons buzzing around. Well, they are, but that's just the the outer vehicle. Thoughts are. Energy entities—that's the best way of putting it. Energetic entities,、mm-hmm. which have tremendous power and potency. And that would be an esoteric teaching, right there, right? In the esoteric teachings, the nature of thought is gone into in some degree. Yes, in some detail as well. Yeah, because it's our, really our. Consciousness, or where our consciousness is at, or st- our state of consciousness. Yes.、Mm-hmm. State is a good way of putting it. Yes. And there may be those listening who are thinking, "Well, I have my private thoughts, and they might feel recognize that there's power in those thoughts, and at the same time, people might feel shame for some of the thoughts they have." That's perfectly natural because we're not saints, Emmy. We're just becoming saints. <laughs> so the very fact that you recognise them is one step or a major step along. So it's like the one sinner who repents. The heavens will joyfully celebrate, rather than a thousand good men thinking wonderful thoughts. The one person who thinks.、Uh, A bad thought and recognizes it, and you know makes a resolve not to do it again. The heavens will celebrate that. I think it would be completely unreasonable、uh, for、um, most people not to have unpleasant thoughts.、It'd、be completely impossible, actually. But the the whole、uh, evolutionary purpose, as I see it, is to Absorb the lower nature into the higher nature, and when that is fully accomplished, such great beings we refer to as the adepts, as the mahatmas in India, as the rishis, or whatever name. When the the lower nature is absorbed totally into the higher. And when that happens, of course, the outlook is completely universal, and that's something I've tried to emphasize as much as possible in these volumes: the importance of a universal outlook. And a universal doesn't mean a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that. It means standing at the center of the circle, and when you stand at the center of the circle, whichever radius radius you go along. To the circumference, it doesn't matter 
you can go along the Christian, the Islamic, the Buddhist, the scientific, but you've started from the center. Mm-hmm. And when you're at the center, you see all around. So another um, feature or characteristic of the esoteric is very much that connecting thread which in the Vedanta is known as Sutratma, the sacred thread that binds, it binds together all the sciences, religions, and philosophy as one, not as one amorphous, homogeneous mass, but showing their common origin and their point of emanation. Yeah, and that is the perennial philosophy. Yes. Perennial indeed, as Albert Schweitzer said, um, perennialism can be likened to a tree that always produces the same fruit, but never the same type of fruit. So the apple tree will always produce apples, but every apple will be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, when winter sets in and the leaves fall off, I don't know if that happens to an apple tree, it certainly happens to an oak tree, when the leaves fall off, it doesn't mean the tree is dead. So when we die, it doesn't mean we are dead. It means the body has withered, but the tree will produce new fruit. And it's extremely important, therefore, to express the perennial philosophy in the modern idiom and not get stuck in any one particular interpretation. Right, right. I have an apple tree and they do shed their leaves. And <laughs> Oh, good. I'm glad I got it right. <laughs> Mine has buds on it at the moment in springtime here in Minnesota. Right. Right, because we can, if we get attached to a particular method, that's where we can start thinking that, quote, our group is better than another group, but the perennial philosophy shows yeah. that there's a common thread amongst all of them. Exactly so. A common thread... That's extremely well put, Emmy. I'm very glad you brought that up. That it's, especially in religions, my religion, your religion, and then let's fight about it and all that nonsense. But if we see for ourselves how all the great religions really start from the same principle, from the divine, from the duality, the triplicity, and that emanation, the process of emanation, we understand that they're all really talking about the same thing. The great saints and sages have dipped their pen, so to speak, into the same inkwell, but they've written in their different handwritings. The handwriting may be different. The ink is the same. Yeah, very well said. And while people are still building themselves up, we can connect to that divine intelligence maybe by listening to what mm, draws our attention or what we might be excited by and to recognize that we do need to have desires and not all desires are bad. Oh, absolutely not. Desires are vital, but it's what you're desiring. I mean, desire in its purest sense, is the is divine love in action. But then, uh, you know, if you take it to 
many levels down, it turns into other things, into selfishness. But desire per se is never evil. And I've got a, a short section of that, are desires good or evil? Not at all. De uh, originally, desire is the, is the desire <laughs> to express love. Without desire, there would be no movement. Gibran in the Prophet put it so beautifully, our, um, you know, our, the, the desire is the propulsive force. But you need the rudder to move the boat in the right direction. You can't just have a propeller pushing it along. So in the human being, um, what is known as kamamanas, design mind, is the pivot point that unites or that glues the higher self to the terrestrial self. Therefore, we can have love for ourselves and love for others with divine action. Yeah. If you can't love yourself, you can't love anyone. And that's not meant to sound funny. I mean, how can you dislike yourself and love someone else? <laughs> I mean, you may dislike, you can certainly dislike a lot of your thoughts and what you've done and all the rest of it. But basically, you've got to respect, let's say, and love yourself to love someone else. Or anyone else or your pet or anything. But again, you were talking, sorry, of again engaging with the higher self. I'd say do whatever inspires you. And your way is not my way. Your way can be sport. It could be, um, well, my way, of course, is music and literature and art and poetry, music primarily. It could be great science, honestly, great science, where the, the laws of nature are very, very inspirational, wonderful mathematics. Uh, but the, the test of that, the test of that is, have your, uh, are all your, mundane thoughts held in abeyance in that state of inspiration you are not aware of your body you're not aware of your difficulties you're not aware of your surroundings you're completely as the saying goes in the flow so in that state of inspiration you are connecting with the higher self but even more so recognize it and don't just let it fritter away. Having attained some degree of connection, some degree, record it. And in moments of depression and when you're downcast, remind yourself that, you know, this can happen. But the more one is unaware of one's headache and physical surroundings and problems, the more one is connected with the higher self. So that's really the test. But, but if you now say, uh, oh, I love football, and if my team doesn't win, I'm going to, like a hooligan, bash up the other team. Well, you know, that's not inspiration. <laughs> right. I'm not knocking football, sorry. Yeah, it's just that it's such a common occurrence. How does 
music build you up, Eddie? Oh my gosh, where do I start? <laughs> I have it really on very, very good record that um, <laughs> well before the age of one, the only way my mother and my parents could keep me quiet was to start the old, in those days, the wind-up gramophone. And that could have to be started up at three in the morning or four in the morning or whatever. And uh, right. Gosh, how can I? When something brings tears to your eyes, you know it works for you. And that can happen on a daily basis. And I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, I don't mean, uh, you know, all the time, but it can, I can, I can recall a passage from Schubert or Chopin or Beethoven, and you feel that welling up within yourself. One of many examples is the ending of the, the first movement of Beethoven's violin concerto after the condenser, and the great Menuhin uh, says in his book that his own teacher, Enesco, wrote on Menuhin's score, he wrote the word worship. And when you hear that passage, you know what reverence is really all about. You don't need any explanation, just hear it. And there are many examples. One can have just a simple key change in a Chopin Nocturne or a Mozart um, aria. And I can promise you no robot even a robot on psychedelics or LSD, no robot could ever achieve that, even one bar. So I have great faith in humanity. All this robot nonsense is a bit of a nonsense. I'm not saying robots don't have their uses, don't get me wrong. But to think that robots are ever going to overtake humanity is not to understand the human state and the human state we understand through occult science. Music and mathematics go very much together. The other thing music teaches one is um, the relation between form and content. That any piece of music, its content can only take that much time. And you realize this painfully uh, in some committee meetings where, you know, the, the content is minuscule and it takes three hours. And you know it's going to go nowhere because the relation between form and content is just wrong. Yeah. Beethoven said music is the connection between the, uh, the divine and the world of the senses and the sensual world. What you just described is an example of how music can lift your spirits and expand your consciousness and raise your vibration. Yes, if you choose the right music, if I put it that way. <laughs> That's very important. I mean, there is a lot that pass in my consideration that passes for the word music, which is muzak. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, the din and cacophony, which jangles your nerves. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mentioned Menuhin's book, and uh, he knew what he was talking about, and he mentions when he was once taken to a rock concert, and he says, people don't realize the, the coarse entities that exist in such places when there is mass hysteria. There's some great rock and roll out there too, Eddie. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not denying that for one moment. Yeah, yeah, for no, sure. No, 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 I'm not denying that. If it inspires you, it's right. But if as a result of that experience, you're unnerved, you go and uh, behave stupidly and get drunk or whatever, then it's, in my understanding, it's not working for you. If you are a better person, if you are more unselfish, if you will share that experience, however you are a better person, it's working for you. And there is a lot of um, American country music, country western, which is beautiful. And the songs and the words are meaningful, and uh, Leonard Cohen as well. Some of his lyrics are incredible. I went to a Leonard Cohen concert uh, in the Albert Hall, and there certainly weren't low-energy entities there, I assure you. (laughs) There was a tremendous feeling of love and unity, really. It was one audience. There's a quote by Leonard Cohen, I'm probably not going to say it accurately, but it's something like, do not fear. It is love that we are born and love that we, in love that we return. Sounds very wise. As humans, we have emotions and desires and like Joseph Campbell suggests, follow your bliss. At other times, people feel that they might be getting muddled by their emotions. And I think that may be where some proponents of transhumanism or robots might feel that a human could quote think more clearly then if they didn't have so many emotions. So is your question how do we think more clearly? I'm just making a comment that that you're offering and I agree with you that our emotions that is who we are our sense of bliss and joy and ecstasy is what is what can make is what really makes us human right all the all the different all the different feelings we have but those who are proponents of more mechanistic materialistic ways probably feel that that gets in the way somehow can you ever annihilate your emotions just if if you think if if they those proponents think that we can make life easier for ourselves by castigating or negating or annihilating our emotions, I I think they'll soon find out the very hard way that's not going to work that way. The, The whole purpose is to manage them, not to annihilate them or to let them, or it's so indulge in them that they overwhelm you, but to manage them. So it's management. So they can have all their materialistic thoughts, but um, that, for me, is just an escape route because ultimately they're going to come up against themselves. 
they will come up against themselves. And, you know, no robot ever cries when another robot breaks down. <laughs> Unless it's programmed to do so. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, who's doing the programming? Right. Humans. Yeah, exactly. It, it ultimately must come down to the human being. So on that note of the continuum of consciousness and how we can have, quote, positive and negative feelings and emotions, can you describe some misconceptions between heaven and hell? Yes. Heaven and hell are often regarded as permanent states where if you've been an evil person, you go to so-called hell and suffer the, the fires and tortures for an eternity. And if you've been a good person, you go to heaven and um, experience untold bliss forever and ever. These are the exoteric distortions of the esoteric teaching on the post-mortem states which I think the occult sciences describe in great detail, and it would be a great benefit to people to understand this, even in a simple and rudimentary fashion, because it removes the fear of death, it resolves the issue of reward and punishment, why me and why not him and that sort of business, and it clarifies this question of heaven and hell, which are words used really in the Christian church mainly for states of consciousness uh, which are not eternal but uh, are stratified according to what happens. So a far more um, useful way of looking at it is um, like a school classroom where if you make the grade you are promoted to the next level up but if you don't make the grade in a nice school you're not beaten up and tortured you just reset your exams again so in terms of the uh, the sanskrit uh, descriptions of the after death states or or really all the other great teachings the the state immediately after death is known as kamaloka, the plane of desires, which is really the level at which the individual has this life review and understands what it did from the inside out experience. The inside out experience is vital. So when I hit someone on the nose, I will experience it as though someone hit me. So it's the inside-out experience. So after that state of consciousness, there are other states of consciousness. Therefore, death is transition. And there are four stages and three transitions. There has to be a transition between one stage and another. The first stage is the physical body. The second is your consciousness in the non-physical realms, the so-called astral. The third stage is your consciousness in Devachan, very 
loosely translated as the heaven world, and the fourth is your reincarnation. According to your teachings, do we all reincarnate? Now, I've tried my utmost to gather together the, 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 the sacred thread from all the great teachings. So the, the simple answer is yes. But the, uh, this, this thing about um, I'm reborn as a stone or an animal is just a total distortion. Once a human being is always a human being. So, yes, we reincarnate, but what reincarnates is very important to understand. It's nothing to do with the, the, the mortal vesture. It's the inner principle that seeks to express through new material. So the parent-child analogy is a very, very useful one. The parent is the higher self. The child are the various personalities. The more the parent can control its unruly child, the less problem it will have when it becomes a parent again. So the more the higher self can discipline its child, the mortal self, the fewer problems there are going to be for the next incarnation. And that discipline is all to do with the Antakarana I mentioned, the connection between the higher and the lower. So, yes, we all reincarnate. The time intervals are enormous or very small, depending on all sorts of circumstances. Time in the subtle worlds has a very different connotation than our physical time. Like in dreams, uh, a moment, a physical moment in dream time can be a year in our dreams. The general rule of thumb, and it's a very general rule of thumb, is that the more spiritual experience one has gathered in this life, the longer will be the interval between death and the next incarnation, because that spiritual aroma has got to be assimilated and absorbed into the higher nature. So, children who die very young, for whatever reason, have hardly had a life to assimilate any spiritual experience. Equally, hardened criminals have hardly done anything to merit spiritual experience. Their next incarnation is pretty quick, because there is very little to assimilate. Equally, the, the, the sage and the saint, if he chooses, can reincarnate immediately because he doesn't need to assimilate any spiritual experience. He has it. So um, it, it is at his behest whether to incarnate or not. And then we have what's known in, in Buddhism as the Bodhisattva, and the Nirmanakayas and all of these words, great souls who have earned their bliss, but out of compassion for the human state, have decided to incarnate amongst human beings. Reincarnation is a little bit of a misnomer. A better word is rebirth. And the Sanskrit word is punabhava, which means again becoming. So if I use an analogy, if I cut my finger, my finger has again become whole. 
but the dead cells don't jump back in again. They're dead. So again becoming is not exactly the same as reincarnation, but, you know, that might be splitting hairs a bit. Yeah. Well, it isn't just about the physical being. No, not at all. And there have been some wonderful studies done by Ian Stevenson, I mean, which is hardly uh, taken uh, notice of, by Raymond Moody, by um, Sylvia Cranston. And you can't get more um, scientific and meticulous work than um, um, Ian Stevenson, for example, in four or five volumes, different cultures, different societies. Yeah. And you just cannot explain how a child in one, say in America, I'm just being hypothetical, can suddenly come up with a language that has been extinct for many centuries somewhere else. To what end do we continue to rebirth? Till a point where we fully understood the human state. Now, the human state, the it's important to understand that humanity is a kingdom of nature, like the mineral kingdom, the vegetable, the animal kingdom, the, the human kingdom. So it is a kingdom of nature. And when one has completely understood, absorbed and engaged with the human kingdom, then there is the superhuman kingdoms and there are levels of nature far superior to the human state. And the best physical analogy uh, I like to use is H2O, which can be ice, water, steam, uh, superheated steam, and so on. So when one has fully perfected one's physical, of course, psychical, mental, facul human faculties, well, that, that's your human incarnation, nicely over and done with, but then it is your choice uh, what to do with it. Most of such, or all of them, will, out of, again, out of compassion, engage with humanity to try and elevate their younger brothers. Because we're all part of one family. When one transitions from this human form, sometimes the soul may stay earthbound. Can you describe yes. a little bit about apparitions? Yeah, sure. The earthbound is, uh, is a very unfortunate uh, condition. Right, the apparitions are various kinds. Firstly, after the physical, after the death, destruction of the physical body, there is the etheric double, the model body, or known as the linga sharira. And that is something that sensitive people can see. It's the near-death visions. So then the entity, bereft of its physical body, exists in what's known as the state of Kamarupa, which is the psychical vehicle, which is the vehicle of all your thoughts and emotions. 
And that vehicle exists for a length of time entirely dependent on the extent to which you have energized your desire nature. So <clears throat> if you have died with strong physical passions unfulfilled, drugs, alcohol, sex, what else is there <laughs> strong physical passions, then the, the Kama Rupa, the psychic vehicle, will be drawn to that terrestrial atmosphere and will be drawn to the aura of people, of physical people, who harbor such emotions and therefore feed on the aura of such individuals. And therefore we find, do we not, that there are some places that have an unclean atmosphere and some places that have a clean atmosphere. So one form of apparition is what I've called the, the Kama Rupa, the psychical vehicle, which when its entities are fully, uh, its energies, its energies are fully exhausted, then the higher person, the individuality, moves on to another state of consciousness known as Devachan. But then the psychic corpse is rather like your cast-off clothes. Now, your cast-off clothes retain some of your shape, odor, and all the rest of it. Left to itself, it will disintegrate. But in the seance room, the energies of the medium and sitters can artificially energize that psychic corpse, and that's another form of an apparition. Another form of apparition is known as the Mahavi Rupa, which is the illusion body, the body of illusion. And that is a very significant um, teaching of occult science, where um, people in extreme danger have suddenly met with an entity who guided them to safety. And there are uh, um, excellent books. One is by Lord Dowding uh, in times of war, and Lord Dowding was the head of fighter command in Second World War, so not exactly a dreamer. And um, the Wickland scripts, and there are authentic accounts of a sudden materialization to help someone in extreme danger. And when that danger is passed, the, that entity completely dematerializes. Another example is T.S. Eliot's uh, in, in uh, his lovely poem, The Wasteland. Another example uh, is uh, uh, during the Second World War, when many mothers, many parents found a materialization of their son in the bedroom roughly at the time of their death on the battlefield. So not all corpses are evil by any means, but there are various reasons uh, when apparitions will manifest. Taking the example of a medium, having a person who is, for example, maybe wanting to connect with a deceased parent or child, mm. you're suggesting that the entity that the medium is connecting with is not necessarily directly the soul of the past loved one? 
but an aspect of it? Very well put. This was a disagreement, or, or let's say this is the extra input and teaching of the Theosophical Society in the 19th century, when the then prevalent teaching was the spiritualist movement that you were connecting with the soul. No, you're not. The soul has moved on. You are connecting with the corpse, the psychic vehicle, the cast-off psychic entity, which is being energized in the seance room, not with the soul of the individual. But there is a magnetic affinity between the soul and the psychic corpse. And therefore, we are told, whereas it is only natural to grieve, excessive grief holds back the soul in its onward progression, excessive grief. Because the departed wants to console the those left behind? No, if there is excessive grief, you are holding back the 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 individual from its onward progression in the same way as when a child leaves home the parent is obviously you know a little sorrowful but if you want to hold back your child and say don't go to university don't get a job i want you in here well aren't you holding back that person's progress it's the parent child analogy is a very useful one here I imagine there may be those listening wondering, well, how does Eddie know all of this? <laughs> oh my gosh, how do you know anything? <laughs> my goodness, I, I would say, in my case, I've always tried to keep the balance between the three levels. Body, soul, and spirit sounds a bit arrogant, but I've never let go of my work in engineering my music and my philosophy because engineering and science is the the polar connection the correspondence of the higher at the terrestrial level and if you lose that connection then you can float all over the place and not uh, necessarily be grounded and tethered the other way is really through a lot of <laughs> reading and contemplation but contemplation is most important right because you can read and and then get uh, you know intellectual indigestion but reading is not the point it's what you read and how you read and reading inspirational literature and poetry is so uplifting how many people know that Franz Liszt, the great composer, wrote a beautiful book on Chopin? And uh, the way Liszt describes Chopin's passing, where he says that pestilence, plagues, fires, earthquakes, none can hold our attention more deeply than the sight of an advanced soul contemplating the nature of time at the door of eternity. Now, when you read that, it brings tears to the eyes and you can always contemplate. Now, 
Liszt didn't know anything about brain surgery and neurochemistry and all of that. But the artist who has traveled the world, well, most of Europe in this case, speaks various languages, meets different people, engages with different orchestras, different musicians, knows the human condition, not the human body. So one only has to read that, which provides a doorway to much greater understanding. Yeah. But I'm not knocking the surgeon. We need the neuroscientist. If you have a brain physical problem, we need a neuroscientist. You know, no end of uh, listening to Liszt or Chopin is going to help when you have a physical problem. So all the time, I'm not knocking anything. I'm saying in its right place. You've also been deeply guided by theosophy. Yes, very much so. Which draws upon many traditions. It does. It draws on traditions, East and West, ancient and modern. And it shows with every evidence and proof, if you like, evidence, that all these various streams have come from one source. And that's a huge thing to say, but it does show that. Yeah. And theosophy only simply means the wisdom of the gods, not wisdom of God, but of the gods. Gods meaning the various powers and forces in nature. Of which we are one. Of which we are certainly an aspect. Man is a radiation of the universal soul. Literally a radiation or mankind, is a radiation of the universal soul. Where does the love factor into the secrets of the soul? Yes, I mean, um, well, everything must start and end with love, even though sometimes uh, love takes turns that uh, we may not uh, particularly uh, like to engage with. Yeah, okay, let's put it this way. If not the secrets of the soul, the secrets of anything, or the inner. If you don't love what you're doing, then you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, it, it must start with love. But I, I think we said that love has its laws and you know, this perpetual um, problem of love and hate. Uh, love has its laws, like all the forces in nature have their laws. I mean, there is the law of gravity. If you jump from a tree and hit the ground, you don't blame gravity. Gravity is neutral. But in one sense, the scientific sense, gravity is the law of love. It brings things together. Doesn't it? Wow, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Another way of looking at love is not looking at understanding love is that uh, I think I, I quoted that wonderful eloquent passage from Paul Brunton that the the creator loves all meaning the Atma the divine self uh, the the creator loves all but but he has enacted laws over us 
And when men look upon each other with hate, they are destroyed by their own iniquity. So this love-hate problem is not to do with love. It's misusing the gift of love. It's abusing the gift of love. And it is a gift. And if you abuse it, you will pay the price. So in order to understand the secrets of anything, you absolutely got to love what you're trying to understand. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked me that because then we can uh, remind ourselves of um, uh, the, the great scientists who really loved what they were researching. Newton was in love with light. <laughs> Einstein, so to speak, was in love with gravity, meaning he felt it in his bones. There was no separation. There was a degree of participation. Barbara McClintock got the Nobel Prize for, I think, for cellular biology or microbiology, but she felt that she was what she was researching. There was no feeling of separation. So in order to understand the secrets of the soul or anything, you've got to be the soul, so to speak, in your inner self. There is understanding in participation rather than knowledge in separation. Yeah. But another way of looking at love is like a beautiful fruit. It's pure and beautiful on the tree. If you leave it out, it gets overripe. It's not the fault of the of the fruit. It's you've just not looked after it. We can look after ourselves and others. Well, I have loved this conversation and all that you've shared, Eddie. Is there anything else you want to share today about unlocking the secrets of the soul? Well, let's think. Let's acknowledge and applaud what science has given us and discovered. Science has discovered the secrets of outer space. It has unlocked the physical secrets of the atom. So its exploration has been outwards. Science must now turn the exploration to the inner space to understand mind. Because if it doesn't, then the bombs that science has made will certainly be exploding around us. So the most bomb-proof shelter, the most bomb-proof shelter, as Yogananda once put it, is understanding mind. So the movement from outer space, which is fine, to the inner space. And science needs to understand this. So we need to mentalize space and spatialize mind to go from the outer to the inner. Hmm. And really to understand that we are spiritual beings, as you say in your book, having a human experience. We're not human beings grappling for spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Teilhard de yes, Chardin yes. said that. Mm -hmm. Attributed to, as you put it. Mm. Attributed to. <laughs>
the most unselfish thing you can ever do is to understand self. It is the most unselfish. It's funny the word selfish and self are S-E-L-F. But how can you understand anything else if you don't understand yourself of, because you are part of everything else? So it's the most altruistic thing to do is to work on yourself. And when we do that, then we do have a desire to love, assist, help, and care for others. Exactly, because then we are acting from a center of real love and understanding rather than I'm going to pat my back by being nice to someone else and try and gain brownie points that way. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts today about AI and concern about robots? Yes, I mean, I have uh, very serious concerns about AI and robots. Concerns entirely to do with the way they're going to be used, not robots in themselves, of course. And I'm very concerned about the way computationalists or computer scientists, and the prime example is Ray Kurzweil, if you pronounce him that way. Anyway, he is the, the Google scientist who invented voice recognition, which is great. But their, their desperate attempts to try and convince us that um, mind and brain are the same as software and hardware, only um, one is computer chips and silicon, the other is biological. And this is really what one might call the complete closing down and the shutting down of the scientific mind. And they try and convince us that we are nothing but computers, our brains in principle. And first, you argue that man is only a computer and by ignoring everything that distinguishes man from a computer. Then you argue uh, that you eliminate all feelings and subjectivity by reducing that to the physical level. And finally, you argue that if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist, because science only works in terms of what it can measure. So it's the attempt to reduce all subjectivity to the physical. They can't deny it, but they want to reduce all subjectivity to the physical and the measurable. So they're blurring the distinction between the robot and man. The cardinal, cardinal flaw in all of this is not being able to distinguish the machine from the operator, the pianist from the piano, the inner man from the brain he uses. So in the occult, um, literature, there is this beautiful saying that the brain is the outer door of the mansion. The, the mansion is what we call the human body. The brain is the outer door of the mansion, which looks out onto the objective external world. But there are many, many internal doors, internal doors that are private. And through those doors passes the currents of thought and feeling which 
no computer, no robot has any understanding or access to, of course. So the, the desperate move to eliminate subjectivity and convince us we're just robots, as Richard Dawkins puts it stupidly, we are nothing but lumbering robots. Well, include himself in that. Thank you very much. If we are all lumbering robots, so is Richard Dawkins. And here, I must say, I distinguish heavily between the intelligent man and the intellectual. I have no compunction in saying, and I choose my words carefully, and I've thought about it. I regard people like Richard Dawkins and Peter Atkins and many as highly intellectual, but not intelligent. Because no intelligent person would ever think that we are nothing but machines and nothing more. We're just super machines. So science needs to understand that high intellect does not necessarily go with intelligence. Even the primitive peasant in India is not intellectual. He hasn't been to university. Even such a man has intelligence. He realizes that there is some divine principle that he worships in whatever way. So these people who tell us that we are nothing but, and the important word is nothing but, machines and computers, are very low intelligence, even though they might have high intellect. Intellect is the mere machinery of the mind, the brain machinery. In intelligence is the light Intellect is the shadow it casts. If the shadow dominates the light, you have problems. Eddie, thank you for helping us to be more intelligent today and giving us a lot to think about. I look forward to our third conversation where we discuss your third volume. And I'm just grateful for our time together today. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, Amy, for inviting me. And uh, I really applaud the wonderful work you are doing in spreading the light or, or, or shining the light, I should say, which is a great service. I'm grateful I could team up with you and do that today. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. we just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.